and thank you for joining us at the bar for another virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Inez Stepman with Independent Women's Forum, and I'm here with my colleague, Jennifer Berseris from Independent Women's Law Center. And today we are talking about the legal rights of parents in school districts that require teachers to adopt a child's chosen name and pronouns without informing them. What rights do parents of minor children have vis-a-vis -vis their child's school when it comes to decisions about personal identity? Our guests today are two parent advocates who have filed lawsuits against school districts for violating parental rights. Bernadette Ramirez Broyles is an attorney and the founder of Child and Parental Rights Campaign, a national public interest law firm. Bernadette received her law degree from Harvard, where I believe she was just a year behind me. Um, we had many mutual friends there. I think her husband was in my class. We can talk about that. Um, and she specializes in litigation regarding parental rights, child protective services, and Title IX. She previously served as an assistant district attorney in Atlanta and has served as a guardian ad litem for children in court. Um, we will also be joined by Nikki Neely. She is not a lawyer, but she plays one on TV, um, or she should because she knows more about the law than most lawyers I know. Uh, Nikki is the president uh, and founder of Parents Defending Education, a national grassroots organization that seeks transparency and greater parental involvement in our children's schools. Prior to founding Parents Defending Education, she founded and led Speech First, an organization dedicated to defending freedom of expression on college campuses. And there actually is quite a bit of overlap between her First Amendment work and her work um, defending parents and, and education. So welcome, ladies. I am going to bring you up now. It's great to see you both. Good to see you, Jennifer. It's been a few years. It has, yes. And you were in my husband's class. Yes, 94, right? And you were 95? I was, yes. Oh, yeah. God, you outed us both. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. We're, we're, we're the old ones on this, though. No, 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 no old. Um, Bernadette, can, can I start with you? Just, um, you know, what have you been seeing on the ground in your work? Um, give us a little bit of a background of the kind of stories that parents are coming to you with, why they might think they might need to hire a lawyer in, in this context. Yeah, what, what is interesting is that we're seeing a remarkable similarity between this, the type of stories that we're getting from parents literally all over the country. You know, you have to pick and choose real carefully how many of these turn into a lawsuits, but we have filed at this point three we have another case we're considering at the moment. And, uh, and, and they're from different states. I mean, it's not just any one single part. So we have two cases filed right now in Florida, you know, red state Florida, with the great governor, and yet two of our biggest, biggest cases are there. And then we have a case right now pending in Massachusetts. And so what we're hearing from parents is this pattern whereby schools are almost inevitably in the dark, not through the public school board process, but through some sort of de facto policy or some, uh, you know, written guidance that they just adopt and put out there that basically says in one way or the other, well, for instance, in Florida, the guidance that we found there, question and answer, question. If a child identifies as on the LGBTQ spectrum or identifies as a different gender, one to the other, should the parents be told the answer, no. 
outing a child to their parents or telling the parents will put the child at risk of harm. And then it goes on to state all the statistics about um, homeless children, et cetera, et cetera. The presumption that we're seeing is that parents don't get it and they are a danger to their child if they're informed about something as important, as directly impactful on their mental health, their, their physical health, and their well-being in the future as their gendered identity. They're presuming that parents can't handle this and that somehow school officials and teachers know better what is right for their children and have the right to somehow usurp the authority of parents. And again, we're seeing this in, in states throughout the country. Yeah, so a lot of states are, are passing these policies, are adopting these policies, as you said, sort of under cover of night without um, public comments or debate. Um, Which, but it's a lie, by the way, to the whole democratic, let's just be clear about that, the whole like democratic control, small d democratic control of schools. But, but please continue, Jennifer. I just yes, wanted no, to check course. that point. It's yeah. so often made by the left. Yeah, no, I mean, these, so these policies are passed internally. Um, but what has been your experience, Bernadette, in terms of actual implementation? Because I, you know, I've had conversations with teachers and parents about this sort of hypothetically, okay, now there's, there's this policy, what will happen if, but um, a lot of people don't seem to understand that it's not a hypothetical, that children as young as eight, 10 years old, who may be maybe experiencing gender dysphoria or may just be sort of confused and and not happy with you know the natural course of, of puberty and how their how their bodies are developing um, somehow express that at school and then get put on a track that their parents don't know about right so here are some those cases sure so here are some examples in our actual case these are these are cases that are pending in court Matter, matters of public record. By the way, it's perjury to make false assertions in federal court. So um, in one, in our first case, the Little John case, they're in Florida, 13-year-old girl. She expresses, starts to express gender confusion. By the way, when you, you're starting to have your period and go through puberty, what girl, what young woman does not experience, you know, a certain amount of angst, like lesser or greater, right? So you know, we all can appreciate that. But what happens in a situation like this, she starts expressing um, discomfort with her body, prefers a non-binary type of um, presentation or identity. And her mom made the mistake of thinking she could trust the teacher and makes mention of it in an email. Teachers and activists takes it and runs with it. Next thing you know, the officials are meeting privately with this little girl. Um, they're creating a whole, in, uh, on paper, gender support plan that asks, what bathroom do you want to use? Who do you want to room with overnight on field trips? What sex? And by the way, the child indicated either. So maybe this 13-year-old girl is going to be with 13-year-old boys overnight? Right. Wow. Um, how do you want us to refer to you when your parents are around versus when they're not around? So the idea being, how do we help you deceive your parents? Okay, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So a whole you know, eight page thing they put in place, parents, and unfortunately our parents found out. Um, and I'll admit one other thing, in that school we found out that there had been an infiltration by activists 
who had very just a very close and cozy relationship with the school board. And so, you know, and, and, and asserting to the school board that you're required to assert the privacy of a child against her own parents. They literally justified this with the parents when the parents found out and asked, how are you doing this? Well, we have to protect the child's privacy. To which the parents respond, we're her parents. What gives you, what law gives you the right to be, you know, keeping privacies from us? <laughs> so, but that's what they presume. They literally, that's presumed that that's, that's how it's supposed to be. Um, our, probably our worst case is uh, a little 12-year-old girl, um, a very Catholic, very Christian little girl. She's being bullied. Again, a pubescent time. She's being bullied and um, just decides it's easy to be a boy. If I'm a boy, uh, uh, being a girl is weak and it's being a, a victim. So she, she, so she, uh, she latches on to a male identity in the midst okay, of where is, where state is this child then? Also Florida? Ultimate Florida, Red Florida. Okay. Um, she mentioned that she says something to the, to the counselor. The counselor takes and runs with it, starts having private meetings, weekly meetings with this child. We have no idea. Parents have no idea this is going on. And specifically, the counselor chooses not, to, does not tell the, the parent because she knows they're Catholic and she knows that they won't agree with this. So they keep this purposely secret for, we're not entirely sure how many weeks until they get a call. Their daughter had attempted suicide at school and now they were taking her away in an involuntary commitment. And this is the first that the parents are hearing that any of this is going on as they're taking their child away. Okay. We have, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one last one. And I, and I, cause I know Nikki has some as well. In Massachusetts, a trans-identifying library, by the way, libraries are becoming ground zero. Guidance offices or counselor's offices and libraries, they're becoming such unsafe places. An activist librarian, she is purposely targeting children to, to get trans-promoting books to them because she, she thinks that they'll be receptive and target and uh, two of our kids were involved in that. Little girl starts to trans identify. A wonderful school teacher who really just, just really loves kids and recognize she's not doing well, something's wrong. Contacts the parents to let them know, you know, your child's not doing well. She seems to be stressed out. And by the way, she's also you know, trans identifying at school. The parents get her help, get her um, a, a therapist. The teacher is fired for, for, telling the parents. for telling, talking to the parents about their child's mental health that enabled them to go get mental health care for their child. Wow. And after the parents instructed the school, we have a mental health counselor involved. Um, you are not to continue having these discussions with our child or continue to affirming this. The school disregarded their instructions and they, and they continued affirming this, promoting this, and meeting with this child. So, so let's, let's, let's bring Nikki in here. What's been your experience um, at Parents Defending Education with this issue? Sure. So we have a tip line at PDE. Um, we've had one since we launched last March. And we have been receiving 50 to 200 tips a week from across the country. 
Last year, almost everything was related to race. This year, well over 50% on a regular basis is related to gender. This has come on like a tidal wave. I think people were really kind of blindsided by this. So just sort um, of organically, you saw that shift. Absolutely. Um, and it's been really interesting because, I mean, this is taking place coast to coast. And that's I'm so glad that Bernadette pointed out that a lot of this is taking place in red states as well. Just because you live in Texas or Florida or Iowa, you're not immune from it because these activists are everywhere. Um, you know, people with an agenda are pushing this everywhere. Um, and so it's really frightening. I mean, we see um, we have people who send us things like um, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, a district put out guidance to teachers that a teacher leaked us. And it said, um, you know, parents are not entitled to know their children's gender identity. That must be earned. Um, you know, we're seeing gender support plans coast to coast where schools are intentionally putting kids on these paths. Um, and when we uh, we uh, just sued uh, Linmar School District in Marion, Iowa, and this is a district that in April 20, uh, of this year, um, so April 25th, 2022, um, actually codified their school board voted on a very expansive transgender policy against the wishes of the community um, that deliberately said, and it, it lays out that um, children under 18, parents are entitled to records under FERPA. And so this district, what they did is they will put all the gender identity related documents into a temporary file so that even if a family pulls their child from the district, requests the permanent file, they will never have access to this. The district throws out that um, all conversations between a, a, guidance, a guidance counselor and a student are protected by counselor student privilege. Like these are things that actually don't exist. That's like it prevents a counselor from testifying against a student, but not from withholding information from parents about this. But right. we are seeing these districts set up this conflict and this tension between families and students. I mean, students generally don't think or would not expect that their family would be unsupportive of them until that idea is planted in their head by these school officials. And so the fact that this is being done to our children with our tax dollars is really insult to injury. I mean, what's interesting, you know, I have four kids who are older now. I, I, I know, uh, you know, you guys have kids too. Uh, you know, when, when my kids were in elementary school and even through high school, I had to sign documents allowing them to take an aspirin, to take, you know, to get Benadryl for a, for a bug bite or a bee sting. I had to sign if the school district was going to use their photo on their website. Um, and if I didn't approve of any of those things, the school district couldn't do it. If my kid went to the nurse and said, I have a splitting headache, whoops, your mother forgot to sign the paper. Sorry, honey. Um, and, and that's just how it was and how I believe it still is on those other items. Yet somehow this intimate, private, you know, very serious issue was kept from the parents. Yeah, I mean, in Iowa, this this policy says any student in seventh grade or older will have priority of their support plan over their parent or guardian. And so at approximately age 12, these kids are encouraged to begin leading a double life separate from their families. Imagine what kind of conflict and, you know, emotional burden that places on a child who is still struggling with, you know, their role in the world. You know, this is, it's a tremendous burden to put on these children. And, you know, at the end of the day, these children will not be will not have these school administrators in their life in perpetuity, right? These kids graduate when they're 18. Who will be the one who holds their children after they've tried to commit suicide, as they're crying, as they're broken? It's the parents. And these relationships are being damaged before our eyes because we have school administrators that are telling them, your parents won't support us, but we're here for you. I mean, we've seen notes from schools where they have put up posters that said, um, you know, I'm your mom now. I mean, really like, kind of gross and deliberate attempts to undermine that relationship between parent and child. If I could just add something really quickly to that. Um, I know you guys have wanted to ask another question, but I, 
there's something so important here. It says schools are becoming the glitter families, the glitter families of these kids. They have. It's, what does that it's, even mean, glitter <laughs> families? Sorry. I, you know, okay, so, so sorry. Myself here is that. Yeah, so, okay, for those who are kind of up in, you know, in the midst of this whole alternative alternative universe, glitter families now are, are generally speaking, just adults that, you know, in the child world, child's world, sometimes it's a neighbor, sometimes it's, you know, a, a friend's parent, but many times it's now teachers or counselors um, or, you know, or it's an, an activist in the community that basically becomes like a surrogate parent or family to these kids. Is, that, and, is it an activist term or is it, is it an actual kind a, of social? No, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an actual term. I mean, that's not, probably not Marion Webster, but it's a term that's used. Then again, Mary Webster doesn't know what a woman is anymore, but whatever. Oh, um, I never had a glitter family. I have a family. <laughs> but it's all, a, it's a, my friends' parents I was very close with, neighbors, aunts and uncles, but never had that extra sparkle of glitter. No, but it's just, it's it's sort of replacing, it's the becoming the surrogate family. And, and what these school officials have is they have an inflated sense of their authority over our children without taking the responsibility for the long-term impacts of what's going to happen to this child. And that's what Nikki's talking about is when this, when this child, where are, where are they when they go into deep depression? Where are they when they become suicidal? Where are they in a few years when they've got, you know, they've removed their breasts and now they are, they're deeply broken, mutilated people. Where are these people going to be? They're going to be long gone, moving on to the next set of kids. So because these policies come from so many different institutions, and I know, Nikki, you talked about in, in Iowa, um, it did go through the school board. In so many other cases, there are just, you know, connections with activist groups that are done through a sort of bureaucratic process. Somebody writes down something somewhere in, in, in an office and it becomes the policy of the school. And Bernadette, you just said they have an inflated sense of their own authority. What are the bases on on which parents can fight back and, and what do they need to know about what the confines of the school's actual authority is? Um, let's, let's start with Bernadette on that one and then, and then Nikki. Yeah. Because Nikki will have some good insight on this too. The, 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 the bit of a challenge is that we haven't had a, a, an absolutely clear Supreme court case on this issue um, to make it, you know, that, that makes it, perfectly clear. However, what we do have is it is clear enough. There has been a pronouncement by the by the Supreme Court going back to almost 100 years that parents have a fundamental due process right under the 14th Amendment to direct the upbringing, care and education of their child. And that has been built on over the decades and a few decades ago in the Par J.R. versus Parham case, they, they expanded that to recognize that also in, when it comes to mental health care decision-making and medical decision-making, that parent, parents have the primacy. They have a fundamental right to, to determine that as well. And that is including when a child disagrees. In the Parham case, the children actually had sued the parents in order to not be civilly committed into a mental health facility. You can't get into any more conflict than that. And the Supreme Court nevertheless said, no, nah, no, the parents have the authority and the judge making uh, the judgment for making this kind of decision. So 
that that is a firm foundation upon which parents can and should assert a constitutional right to direct the and upbringing and, and the mental health care. Clear, it's, there's no parental rights clause in the Constitution, right? So this whole notion of substantive due process um, and, and the notion that this is a fundamental right is sort of based on the idea that the right to raise your family as you see fit is almost pre-constitutional. It's based in natural law. And, and, you know, for time immemorial, parents have been the locus right? And and a common law. And that, you know, the constitution can't, there's nothing in the constitution that takes those fundamental rights away. And the state can't therefore do that without violating due process. That's, that's sort of the theoretical um, reasoning. Yes. And then in addition to that, a number of states have codified parental parents' bills of rights. Like, for instance, Florida, incidentally. Now, that statute wasn't in place when our first case happened, but it was in place when our second case happened, and, we, and we've asserted a claim under that. Um, but about 19 states have those, which means the rest don't. Um, but there you have it. Nikki, what about um, what? What do you tell the parents who are calling your your tip line about what their rights are, what the basis of those rights are, and and, and how the school, if if the school is actually overstepping outside of the legal framework that the authority that they do, the school has, you know, how how do you um, like what do you say to the parents calling in or or emailing you or, or sending you messages um, about their troubles with the school, what do you say to them about where the balance of power and rights falls between the parents and the school? Yeah, I think, you know, most people know sort of in their gut that they have a right to raise their children. Um, and so, you know, we point them to because, um, you know, as uh, as Bernadette said, the Parham case, but there's also, you know, the Troxel case, Pierce v. Society of Sisters, like Wisconsin v. Yoder. There's a lot of federal court precedent on these. The parents have this fundamental right to direct the upbringing of their children. Um, and so, we told them that they're on very firm constitutional grounds. Um, and to us, I think, you know, the first part of this battle is just reminding parents of that fact. Um, you know, we, we tell people, you know, what are your rights under the First Amendment? What is Title VI mean? What does Title IX mean? Um, what is the 14th Amendment? Because we want people to know that they are on firm footing because it gives them that confidence to actually start to speak up and push back. Um, because then they realize there are red lines. And then when they know where the lines are, they know if and when those lines are crossed, something has to happen. And so, um, again, just to sort of like, you know, buoy them up and let them know you're not alone, you're not crazy, and you're certainly not wrong. And even though you're being gaslit by people with your tax dollars, um, you are, you know, you're on the side of the angels in all this. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we have almost everybody who sends us tips. They check that they want to be anonymous because they credibly fear retaliation for speaking up about these issues. Um, and so I'm so grateful for people like Bernadette you know, and you guys that speak about these issues, because unfortunately, you know, this stuff is not covered enough in many mainstream outlets for people to actually know that they do have rights um, because we're told, you know what, you just kind of defer to the experts. The school authorities know what they're doing. Um, and that's not true whatsoever. So, Nikki, your your lawsuit um, is on behalf of a number of parents who you were anonymous, parent A, B, C, D, and you explain uh, what in, in your complaint, what their interests are. They're not parents who have yet um, been embroiled by these policies, but they are concerned that their children will be for various reasons. Um, 
Tell us a little bit about the, the posture of that case and why those parents are coming forward, um, you know, sort of uh, offensively to deal with it before, before it's too late. Yeah, this policy was passed at the end of the school year last year. And so we're in obviously summer break right now, but school's going back in session in a few weeks. And from day one, the school, the district has very clearly outlined that children of any age can have a gender support plan beginning in kindergarten. It's just from seventh grade on that parents can't find out about it. Um, also, children of any age can be disciplined for misgendering or mispronouning a peer. So again, from day one, the first day of school, kids can be expelled or suspended for using somebody's incorrect pronoun. Um, and so things like that, you know, just on that, fa like facially, it's just, it's, it's out of control. Um, but we have two special needs families in the district as well that are absolutely terrified because of the statistics about how children with autism are more susceptible to these issues. Um, and then another family that has a child with Down syndrome who is, the child is above seventh grade, but is actually intellectually um, at a much lower level. And so she needs the policy to keep secrets, but she doesn't understand the, the repercussions of that. And so those families um, fear very greatly for something that might happen to their child that they will never know about until it's too late. And can parents, other parents in other districts who are facing this, when they call uh, Parents Defending Education or they file a tip with your organization, um, you don't necessarily litigate every case. You provide resources for them. But if they, if they want to go forward and take legal action, uh, do you refer them out or is that something that you consider taking on on their behalf as in at this case that you just filed? Yeah, I mean, we, we consider taking everything on. You know, we look at the facts of the case. In this case, the fact that it was a policy that had been ratified by the school board um, was kind of surprising. I mean, we see these kinds of things taking place from coast to coast. But in many cases, it's done sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. It's a district practice, but it hasn't officially been codified. And in this case, the district kind of like they said the quiet part out loud, which is, you know, they, they actually wrote, wrote it down. They actually voted on it. Um, there was a four hour school board meeting where 400 parents showed up, 59 of them spoke in opposition to it, and the district voted it through in nine minutes against the opposition of the families. Um, and it only took that long because one school board member had the temerity to actually ask some questions about it, ask the school board attorney if she had read and vetted everything. Spoiler, she didn't. Um, and so it's really interesting to watch how these things unfold, again, against the wishes of these people's constituents. And so in that respect, it was easy that it was, you know, it, it is just a facial challenge for a policy that applies um, from any point on. Mm -hmm. You know, Inez, to answer your question a, a little bit further, I feel like parents need to understand we have been lulled into outsourcing our parenting for, for, for quite some time now. And it was kind of like, oh, you, you can trust us. You can trust us. You know, the experts know better than we do. The psychologists know better about your child than you. The teachers know. Everyone knows better. And, and we've kind of been lulled into outsourcing. And what I say to parents now, you got to take this authority back before it's lost. And, I, and some practical tips is um, communicate with your school, uh, you know, in writing. If you have any concerns about this going on, put it in writing in an email letter, what your child is permitted to do, what she is or he is not permitted to do, the, the clubs that they are not permitted to be a part of, how they're going to handle if this kind of issue comes up, how they must handle this, the expectation they will, they will contact you. You literally put lay out in writing your parental expectations. And if you have a faith, I also say put your faith, your belief system in, in there as well, because all of that then puts the school on notice. 
hopefully most of the time they, there's enough temerity on the, on the part of the school that once they realize, and by the way, if it gets bad and you get pushback from the principal, then I would send it again and I would copy a, an attorney. That lets them know that you're, you're setting up the record and they'll go on to the next victim, someone who's a little less on the ball than you, so to speak. But if not, and they continue, then you will have them seated now in the record of what is going to be your case in the future. You put them on notice, particularly at, of your, uh, your First Amendment rights, your, your religious liberties. And then if they, they, perp now they violate it, now it's deliberate indifference. And that's a term of art in, in, the, in the law. Now they would have been deliberately indifferent. And so you, you, know, you help set up a suit. But these are the sorts of things we tell them, you know, practical things uh, to do. I, I want to talk a little bit about Title IX because... I'm um, going to do the same thing. So. Yeah, I, yeah, we can't have this discussion without talking about no. um, the direction that Title IX is going. Go ahead, Jennifer. Well, the problem is that a lot of these schools right now will claim uh, incorrectly that, that they're compelled to have these policies by Title IX. Um, they're not. Title IX doesn't say anything about this at all. It doesn't say anything about gender or gender identity right now, but it certainly doesn't say anything about hiding things from parents. Um, so I think, you know, currently, if a school district relies on Title IX for, as a justification for what they're doing, parents should call them out on it and say, that is absolutely not true. Um, but there are these proposed regulations from the Department of Education uh, that, that could perhaps be interpreted to give the force of law to to schools that are like the thing. What what do you think about that, Nikki, and what can parents do if they um, want to fight back against those proposed rules? Sure. I mean, I remember in 2020 when Secretary DeVos's rules came out, schools were shut for COVID and districts and universities threw up their hands and said, there's no way we can comply with this rule, this actual rule that went through the whole notice and comment period in 10 weeks. Um, and, you know, they were they were trying to ask for extensions. They were trying to delay and push. And now we're seeing districts that are actually trying to get ahead of the ball and put the policies into place even before the rules pass, which is like mind boggling to me. So it really shows where all these administrators heads are at. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we encourage people, look, no, the Title IX does not protect this right now. Um, push back against it. That's um, a, a misgendering policy. That's something that this district has thrown out. And so it's something we put in the lawsuit is that this is not, in fact, a Title IX violation. And Title IX, as far as even the pronoun stuff goes, um, harassment is defined as being under Davis so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it interferes with a student's educational opportunity. Um, even so, you know, statutory things like Title IX cannot and will not supersede the Constitution. The First Amendment is going to trump all of this. And so even though the school might want you to be nice and want you to use somebody's preferred pronoun, um, at the end of the day, you cannot compel speech. You cannot own real estate in a child's head or mouth. And that is what schools are demanding and expecting. And so, you know, we're, we're very worried about the Title IX rule. Um, we have a campaign underway right now to help people submit comments. As of, I think, yesterday, we had over 16,000 comments that have been submitted. Um, and, you know, we hope to keep up that pace to let the Biden administration know that this is something that the American people do not want. And if you want to do this, then do it through the proper channels and ratify it through Congress, not with a pen and a phone. Right. So on these proposed rules, for the sake of the audience and the, the parents that are watching this, um, this is a freight train coming down the track with our kids strapped to it. 
there's, there's this, and our parental rights strapped to it. Because what, is, what it's basically doing, it's expanding the scope of Title IX to now prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So as a practical matter, and, and what the, the proposed regulations actually say. Let, yeah, let me just stop there because to some people that sounds like, well, what's wrong with that? Don't We don't want gay and trans kids to be bullied, right? I mean, that's how the administration is portraying it. We're trying to protect gay and trans kids from being bullied. It, just to be perfectly clear, these rules don't do anything about bullying. What they do is they take away parental rights with respect to your own children, they take away kids' free speech rights, right? And they take away people's due process rights and all sorts of other things. They actually don't do anything to protect a gay child from being bullied. Zero. Right. That's right. That's right. So how so how is it that, it, you know, people are like, how, how could that take my parental rights away? It's Title IX. I mean, isn't that, right. isn't that sports? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so here's the, here's, I, I want to draw the connection for, for your viewers. Because the new regulations state in black and white that the presumption is if you do not allow a child to participate in any educational program, doesn't matter, anything, going to the bathroom, sports, anything, in a manner that's consistent with their gender identity, that it causes, a, it subjects the child to harm. It presumes that, that you are harming the child across the board without any sort of medical. And so that means you have to go along with what the child wants, even if the parent does not. Yes, immediately, immediate and unquestioning affirmation, period. No medical, nothing, no parents involved, no consent to parents, no notice to the parents, nothing, no legal documents, nothing, nothing, just the, just the assertion of the child. And part of the problem with that is that um, it is foreseeable. Well, first of all, the Title IX coordinator is given the right to file a complaint, even if the child doesn't want to. Okay. And the Title IX, and by the way, and everyone has to report to the Title IX coordinator if they see any evidence of, of discrimination based on gender identity. So now the whole school is turned into watchdogs to report to the federal law enforcer, the Title IX coordinator, that someone has misgendered a child or someone's not, you know, affirming. And, and here's the thing, because now here's, there's even worse because it presumes it's harming a child to not allow the child to participate consistent with their gender identity. It is highly first expected, no question about it, that it'll be the basis for um, reports to child protective services. They are already doing it now without good reason. Okay. This will actually give them black and white reason to, to make reports to child protective services. Right. Whereas it used to be harm was considered you had to do something affirmative against somebody to harm them. Now the failure to verbally and otherwise affirm a child's identity is considered essentially abuse. I mean, regulations don't talk about abuse, but they convey and sort of shift that burden in the minds of, of school officials. They, they actually use the word harm, subjects the child to harm. So if you have a parent who wants to affirm biological reality, wants to maintain biological reality, and is instructing the school, do not, uh, do not endorse a false or assumed identity. My child has depression. My child is, has autism. All kind, my child has, has been traumatized in some, whatever. Then they would have cause to 
believe that the, the parent is subjecting the child to harm. And it is highly foreseeable that activists, teachers, or administrators will call child protective services. This is a disaster. So what do we do? What well, do we do? It's worth noting, of course, that you know, if a school truly believes that a child is at harm, that if they are at risk from their family, their mandatory reporters totally separate from Title IX. If you think that a child is in danger at home, they have to let somebody know about it. And so the fact that these parents have not yet been reported to Child Protective Services until all this gender stuff comes up is a big red flag to me. Because mm -hmm. you know, if you start to falsely accuse people of putting their children in danger, you're going to be smacked with a lawsuit, right? And so these schools are really like they're trying to have it both ways. And so if a child, if a family's unsafe, it's unsafe. Period. Yeah. So unfortunately, the 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 threshold for me for for making a report is so low that it's very very hard to see them. But but you know, it doesn't even matter because once if this these regulations pass, then the presumption of harm is is going to back them up every single time. Here's the point, though. What can we do? I hate to talk about, you know, disasters coming without get, without empowering people to do something. We can do something about this. And I know, Nikki, I think you should put your website out there. Our website will be live by, by tomorrow. Um, we've made this easy for people. We need to flood the DOE with comments, with public comments. The way the rulemaking, federal rulemaking works is that the law requires the agency to give, to allow the public to to make comment about it, to to comment about you know unintended consequences, intended consequences, how this will affect our family, our community, our rights, etc. We need to flood them with these comments. Why? Because we want to number one gum it up and delay it. If they get you know thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of comments from all the parents around the country, they held us up when President I should us they held up President Trump's um, regulations for months and years this way. Let's do the same thing to them. We hopefully will have a, a different Congress you know, in time. But if nothing else, we wanna seed the record with evidence of the impacts, of the negative and harmful impacts this will have on children's health, on, on parents, on you know, First Amendment rights, on girls sports, such that when they are sued, and trust me, they're gonna be sued. The DOE is going to be sued. It'll probably be Nikki, me, it'll be the states, et cetera. It'll, there'll be in the record that all of these consequences and, and negative impacts were either not considered or adequately addressed or were never considered by Congress when Congress passed Title IX to begin with. And so therefore these regulations are arbitrary and capricious and a usurpation of legislative authority. Yeah, I think that's probably all the time that we have, but I, I do want to um, commend both of you, your organizations, and I'll, I'll list them off um, when, when we say goodbye in a moment. I wanted to add that Independent Women's Voice also have, we have our own Title IX comment portal. We are also driving comments. Um, please, everything Bernadette said is 100% accurate. These comments do matter. Don't think of this as like screaming into a void. Every comment that comes in, every substantive part of that comment has to be addressed by the department before they actually finalize these rules. So um, th this is this is uh, not only setting up the lawsuit that Bernadette is talking about, it's delaying the implementation of this rule, right? And uh, that that's just critical. It's taking up their bureaucrats' time. Um, they have to answer every one of your concerns uh, in order to set up for the lawsuit that Bernadette is talking about. So this, this really does matter. So you can go to iwv.org slash campaign save dash r dash schools 
save our schools, take back Title IX, dashes between all of those things. Um, so you can do that as well. Um, I have one quick question before we go for our guests, and that is how would a, a parent hearing about this maybe for the first time find out if their school has one of these policies? Um, what would be, what would you recommend? I'll let you go first, Nikki. I, I know, but. You know, we say when more flies with honey, you know, ask very innocently, do you have a gender support plan? Um, and if you don't get the answer you want, we encourage people to file public records requests, ask for the documents. I mean, just get a blank copy of it to figure out what's on the books there. Because, you know, you start pulling those threads and you'll be surprised what you find. Um, because I, I bet they're on the books everywhere and people just don't even know. Yeah. Well, they, they really are in some places, like, for instance, in Massachusetts, it was a de facto policy. It was never it was all understood, but um, they were they were careful not to actually put put what they were doing in writing. Mm -hmm. So it is it is a common and then and then there's others like Nikki's where they're bold enough to go ahead and put a vote on the school board. You know, it, it, we've seen all in between. I would say in Nikki, yes, ask for it. But then I would secondly, I would ask for it in writing. I would first ask verbally because then it, when you do it in writing, it's like antenna are up. Ask nicely, sweetly the first time. Oh, then no, we, put, we put everything in writing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but, well, but, but it, it makes sense what you said, you know, you, maybe you get it just by, you know, asking nicely, but then, then in writing and then with an open records request, because again, all of this, you're making a record. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, well, thank you both for scaring us, uh, but, but, but appropriately, I think, um, I, I agree with Jennifer. I think these policies are likely everywhere. Um, it's part of the reason that it's so important for states to actually pass something like the Parents' Bill of Rights or pass something like the Women's Bill of Rights, right? Um, to put affirmative, something that, you know, Nikki and Bernadette can actually um, go ahead and offensively litigate under when a school violates one of those those provisions. Um, so if, if you believe that your child's secret, your school um, is actually keeping secrets for you from you about anything related to your child's chosen identity, all of this sort of gender ideology stuff, please do re reach out to these two ladies, Bernadette at Center for Child and Parental Rights Campaign, Nikki Neely um, at Parents Defending Education via their websites. Uh, that would be respectively childparentrights.org and defendinged.org. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for joining us, ladies. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you. At the Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. And you can listen to At the Bar as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us in a few weeks for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Until then, cheers. <laughs>